Michelle, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Earl. It's my pleasure to be on. Oh, I am just, I'm, I'm tickled to have this conversation because it fits so well with what my partner and I do. Uh, but before we get into the book and talking, really having this great conversation around leadership and diversity, uh, when you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? That's a great question. I mean, I work with a lot of leaders. The whole book that I wrote, Authentic Diversity, is really about what is that leaders can do. And when I think of the phrase burden of command, I think not just of the exhaustion and the stress and the pressure that is put on leaders to be the ones who set the norms, set the examples, set the atmosphere to ensure that we are creating a workplace of inclusion. But you know what I also think about? I think about the leaders who are constantly having to navigate choices, right? So if I am a minority candidate who is coming in and you as a leader have to decide, how are you going to make sure that this person is able to succeed in your workplace? All of that, that pressure and that stress on you to do that work. But then there's also that pressure and stress on that minority candidate to say, do I have someone who believes in me? Do I have someone who supports me? Am I working with someone who's able to give me those resources as well? And if you as a leader recognize that, then I think that that's that additional burden, the knowledge that your job as a leader and your job as a commander, the person to be doing this leadership, people's livelihoods are at stake. People's careers are at stake. People's, whether they're able to feel included and are able to succeed and whether the barriers are reduced for their entry, um, well, not their entry, but their success, that's all a part of the work that you have to do. And that is a lot on your plate. And so when I think of the burden of command, that's what I think about, because it's not just about how, how hard the work of leadership is to me. For me, it is the people, right? The people that you are leading and the people whose lives you have the ability to transform. And that is, the, that is an enormous burden to carry. Mm, no, I love it. And, and I just want to, you kind of corrected yourself there with the entry, but I think that is still, I mean, I think that's still a valid word, right? Because that's one of the hardest things that a lot of organizations struggle with is changing what that new employee looks like. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think when we think about what those new employees look like, it's really easy for us, and we do this a lot, and it's really easy for us to hire what we know. So we hire in the schools that we went to, and we hire the people. I mean, there are some industries where you just, you know, you really do hire your your your, your cousin's cousin or the nephew of the uncle who's the partner, because that's how that industry is run, right? And so there are, and then we, we so we, I mean, nepotism is alive and well. But what also happens is that then we create entries and these artificial barriers because we don't want to spend the time training people on how to succeed. We just think if we just use credentials as a shortcut, that will make sure that, you know, anyone who has these credentials is fine. And if they don't succeed, well, that's probably because we hired them because they didn't have the right credentials. And if they didn't succeed and had the right credentials, we don't say, well, maybe we shouldn't go back to, you know, that university and recruit from them again. We just say, well... You know, something didn't work out, but it's, you know, that, 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 that we can't change anything about the system and how we recruit because eventually, you know, once in a while it works out and we remember the time it works out and we don't remember the times it fails. But for minority candidates, all we remember are the times they fail. We remember again and again, this is when it didn't work out. And because this is when it didn't work out, that's what's on our mind over and over again. And speaking of that burden, that's the burden that if you are, you know, you're coming in the door and you're a minority candidate. That's the burden that you have to recognize and that you have to already overcome. It's like you're four steps behind before you even started. Right. You know, I, and uh, you're a hundred percent, hundred percent dead on there. And, and I like what you said there, uh, you know, about that burden for, let's just say you're the first in an organization, you know, we, we love to celebrate first and we should, but being first has a lot of perils because if you flame out, you just said a very, you, you said a quote, bad example, and you put that effort behind the eight ball, right? And a lot of times it's not even your fault that you flame out because people don't know how to incorporate you because you are the first, right? Mm-hmm. And I, one of the examples I like to use is that, you know, there is a really great graphic, and I'm sure, you know, you've seen it before, where you look at these three boys and they're standing behind a fence to watch a baseball game, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you've seen this graphic, what the, the cartoonist who wrote it, who designed the graphic, it's actually a really interesting story, but the guy who designed the graphic, he says, you know, quality is you give three boys different the same stool to stand on, and maybe one of them can see over the fence, but the other two can't, right? Mm-hmm. But equity is you give each person a different size stool, and then each of them can see over the fence. Because the shortest boy, because there's three different heights, the shortest boy gets the tallest stool, the medium height boy gets the you know the medium sized stool, and the tallest boy didn't even need a stool in the first place, doesn't get a stool, and he's fine. But the reason I don't love that is because what you're just focusing on is giving people the tools to succeed. You didn't tell me anything about that fence. So ask yourself questions. Why is that fence there? Why are these three boys or three black boys, why are they standing outside the fence? Why weren't they allowed in? What were the rules of admission to this game? And I want people to also think about that aspect of it when it comes to diversity and inclusion work. We cannot just keep focusing on what is it, how much more coaching, how much more development, how much more sales training do our do our BIPOC employees need? We got to start thinking about, well, are our executives allowing them to come into the same spaces? Are they inviting them on the client calls? Are they giving them the right feedback? Are they giving them any feedback? Are they thinking of them as equally competent? Are they walking them into their in-groups? So you change that perspective from it's on that person to get the resources to succeed to it is on you as a leader to do the work to make sure that, that person succeeds because that's the, you know, that's the task that you accepted when you chose this leadership role. 
Mm. And, and I love that because that's one of the things that I preach, especially with that burden of command piece is what, uh, I get a lot of interesting looks because I'll ask leaders, like, what is the <laughs> most important job you have? And, you know, they'll typically like start talking about bottom line. I said, no, the most important job you have is hiring people. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and we go into all of those things like you just said. So, um, no, I, and I love it. So authentic diversity, how to change the workplace for good. Now, what I love about this uh, title is, you know, diversity, inclusion, these aren't new words. These are right. things that we've been talking about for decades upon decades. And sadly, we've really made very little progress, right? Why is that? From my perspective, I think, and I want people to say, you know, we say we have made a little progress, but I think that's because we are so focused on permanent transformative change, right? We have made progress, right? Mm -hmm. There are black people in executive positions, if we want to like just talk about, you know, racial demographics that were not there 40 years ago. The problem is the progress is so mind numbingly slow that we are, we went like when it comes to women equity partners and law firms, we're not going to even get to 30% until 2080. So that is the issue that we, we make these tiny, 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 tiny steps. But when you look at the big picture, 467 of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the 37 CEOs who are women, none of them is black. Actually, one of them was just appointed. So one is black right now. So when we think about what progress we have made, if you look at the macro level, it kind of looks depressing. And why is that? I mean, I can think of, and this is why I talk about my book when I say the old rules of diversity. I have a lot of reasons why we haven't made progress. From my perspective, I think the number one thing is, is a lack of imagination and a lack of creativity and an inability to see the companies that are successful at this work. um, The companies that have actually made real strides are the ones where we have leaders who are willing to put them, put their careers on the line and say, I am going to stake my success on creating a diverse workforce because I genuinely believe that a diverse workforce is the way to go. Whatsoever they do next from that, whether it's using your data analysis, whether it's how you interview or how you hire, whether it's how you sponsor, whether it's how you promote, whether it's where you hit targets, we could talk about all of that. It has to start with having leaders be courageous enough to say it begins and ends with me. And I'm the one accountable for this. And I'm the one who's going to, I'm not gonna put it down to my HR team. I am not going to put, and who already have their own biases as well. I'm not going to make it someone else's job. This is my job. The one good thing that has happened in 2020 is that I have seen a lot more leaders are willing to say, this is my job ever since George Floyd was murdered and who are willing to say, I, my name is going to be on a statement. I am going to write it. I'm willing to take this work. And that's what I need to see more of before we even get to all the other stuff they should do. It has to start with leadership saying it's on me. I 100% agree. And, uh, you know, and and it's sad that it takes an incident like uh, George Floyd's uh, murder to to trigger that because he's by far not the first incident we've ever had. And sadly, as we've seen since then, he's not going to be the last. Right. And, um, you know, that that ownership, right? And I love the way you put that, that ownership of, of taking that responsibility and showing the way. And you mentioned these old rules, and, and I love these old rules because I think they do a good job of summing up why diversity, yes, it has made some advances, but it's still kind of spinning its wheels, so to speak. 
But the first one is just make the business case for diversity. Why is that an old rule? So when we make the business case for diversity, um, let me tell you what that sounds like if you're um, you're, 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 you're a minority. It sounds like that my existence in your organization needs to be commodified. That you are saying that the only reason that my, 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 my existence here is important is because I make you more money. Um, I'm not saying it's a terrible rule. Like I, I'm saying it's an old rule, but it's how we frame the discussion. So diversity makes us more money. Diversity makes us more productive. Diversity isn't just an abstract concept. Diversity is people. It's people and their lives and their existences. And you saying, well, if we just bring in more diversity, we're going to make more money. That's eliminating the work that you as a leader need to do to make that happen. So if we don't want things like diversity makes us more money to be an old rule, then what I need people to do is be more specific about what you're saying. When you are saying that diversity is good for our business, why is that? What segment of your business is diversity good for? What exactly is it good for? And when you say diversity, what kind of diversity are you speaking about? Because I want to hear some more about the details of what you are thinking and what you are seeing and what you are doing. So when I say it's an old rule, I just feel like we are so committed to this idea that diversity is a good thing and we don't go into any more details than that. But if you look, right, Earl, if you look at all the studies and you look at why those companies are successful, the ones that have the higher profit margins, who have the more committed employees, it's not just because diversity is good in of itself. It's because they have managers and leaders who are able to manage conflicts or are able to you know, take diverse identities and let people have autonomy in their jobs. That is how we get a successful business case for diversity. So that's why it's my first old rule. I really want people to be a little bit more intentional and not treat diversity and people as they are commodities to be traded. Mm. No, I love that. And, it, and it's easy to do because the data supports everything you just said. More diversity right. means more success. So it's very easy to leave it at that. But like you said, it kind of skips the whole thing. Like, I see too many organizations, I'm not sure how much you've ran into this, that, that come up with this like noble goal of, hey, I want to hire, say, 20% African-Americans. Okay, that's fine. But then when they don't hit that goal, they hide behind, well, you know, we tried, but we weren't able to get enough applicants. Well, why is your organization not an organization that attracts more African-Americans to apply for the jobs? And that's a key question a lot of right. businesses don't stop to answer. You can't just say, I want to hire 20% uh, more, whatever demographic, and expect them to magically show up. You still have to be a place that they feel welcome, included, and want to work, right? Yep. And I think that's exactly the challenge because when we say, why can't we attract more applicants? The question you need to ask yourself is, are you creating a space where you can attract more applicants? I don't want to work in a company where there's no one in leadership who looks like me. Why do I want to work there? Does that mean that I can't succeed there? And again, when we blame, when we put that blame and we put that burden on the person applying, you're doing exactly what you just said, Earl. We're saying it's your fault. It's on you. I don't have to change anything really about me, right? So if I have had a predominantly white male leadership for the past 20 years and we've been very successful, why should I change that? Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead, knock yourself out. But I can tell you, especially as I do all those old rules of diversity, let me tell you all the challenges that you are going to face if you don't have that diverse, you know, diversity of perspectives, diversity of thoughts, diversity of identities on that board in that C-suite. Plus, you're going to have what happened last year with a lot of companies. When the protests happened, when the when the calls to racial justice happened, you had no leaders able to talk about it. You had absolutely no one in any executive or senior level 
who was able to help lead those conversations. And that is sad. And that is truly sad. And if we are going to make real progress, then it's time for leaders to be reflective of their own composition, of their own team members, of their own biases and their own assumptions. And, you know, maybe you're not going to hire, you're not going to hire, you know, five Latinx associates tomorrow, but you can see, maybe you start with one and then see where it goes after that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So old rule number two, make sure you mention that bias is okay. Oh, it's okay. You have bias. It's fine. I mean, it's like, we're talking to people that are five years old or all you're like, oh yeah, you're no, you're, you're biased. It's fine. It's universal. Everyone has it. <laughs> And that is why it's my old rule, because we got to talk about how it really hurts people. You know, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I'm trying to tell people when I say that. Yeah. No. And, and, and again, it's another one of those easy traps to fall in because it's true. And that's where that that old the, the old improv thing. Yes. And yes, exactly. It's a yes. And I love that. So, like, you know, I think and, you know, I do a lot of bias trainings. I'm sure you do bias trainings as well. They are great and they are a great way for people to get aware of things that they have not known. They have not realized that they assumptions that they have made about other people. That's wonderful. That's not the reason it's an old rule. It's an old rule because we often stop there and we often let people off the hook by we telling them, you know, these biases, they exist. And that's and it's, it's hard. Right. But that's that's the way that's the way your mind is is, is wired. But what I want, and I'm sure you do it in your programming, what I really want everyone to realize is what it feels like. If you are someone, I mean, I speak for my, I'm a black woman, right? Mm -hmm. I can tell you what bias feels like if I'm a black woman. I can tell you what it feels like because I have had so many experiences of microaggressions. Microaggressions is a very nice, polite euphemism that we use. Let me share with you what it really feels like, how it cuts you down, how it makes you feel like you don't belong here whether it's a bias about your gender or your sexual orientation or your ability status, whatsoever that bias is, it's telling you again and again that your place is not here. Mm-hmm. And then you start as an individual and all those individual ways that you cut somebody down, I call it the death by a thousand cuts. You cut and you cut and you cut and you cut them down. And you may not realize that you're doing it, but listen, if you're the 15th person to say, oh, my hair, your hair looks so ethnic or, oh, your name's not Malcolm. No, it's not Malcolm. That's the other black man. And there's only two of us because you only hired two of us. And you always call us by the wrong names. And you can keep going with this. And you can be that person who stays in that workplace and suffers this day in and day out. Or you can leave. And if we are always wondering why we can't retain great diverse talent, I want to tell you how bias really feels. And then when you start with that, then let's bring it to the institutional level. Let's talk about the bias that is baked in our systems and how we hire and how we evaluate and what schools we recruit at and all of that. Because as you get deeper and deeper into this challenge, that is when you start to realize that bias is an absolute reality of human existence. And it is how much we wield it and how it allows people who have the power, who are in the in-group to stay in that power. That is the real discussion that we need to have. And that is why I think so many companies struggle with having that honest discussion and so many people who are in those marginalized groups feel like they can't share. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Rule number three, whatever you do, don't mention race. <laughs> well, yeah, I like that one. I, yeah, it's well, I mean, it's interesting because we, we are almost conditioned at, at many stages in our life to, to, to avoid race for any reason. 
And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to push back on you a little bit there, Earl, because you just said the we and that's another example. So when we say we, who are we talking about? Are we talking about white Americans? Because yeah. um, I, I mean, and that's and that's we. So when we have these discussions, I want us to talk about who is the who are the people that we are speaking about? The people who say things like I don't see color and I don't see race. I have never said that in my entire life. Right. And I want us to have that honest discussion, especially in the last year. Like I said, you had so many white white male leaders, especially who were just so unequipped to have conversations about George Floyd. And who were so unequipped to have conversations about racial justice. And yes, you can say, oh, it's their fault. They should. But you know what? They have lived in a country that for far too long does not have conversations on race. Mm-hmm. And I know you said you saw my TED Talk, right? That's one of the things I talk about in my TED Talk. That experience of being, I'm a black immigrant. That experience of a black immigrant listen, talking to a woman, a sales clerk, a white woman sales clerk. And then just waiting for her to ask, was it the black woman or was it the white woman? And that realization when you come to the States and you realize that, White people do not ask that. Yeah. It is it, to even say someone is black sounds like it's racist. And then you extrapolate that further, right? So we don't talk about race in our interpersonal interactions. We say things like that's the good neighborhood or that's the good school or that person is the right fit or that person, you know, isn't going to go fit very well here or they're underperforming. And we try and talk about all the other reasons that it doesn't have to do with race. And so my ask for people is if you are getting into these conversations, whatever your racial ethnic background is, then have honest conversations on race. Reflect on your own life. Reflect on the choices you made and your parents made and you're making for your children. And once you start really looking at them, tell me if you really are colorblind and tell me if you don't really see race. Because I can tell you that I've done this work for a lot of years and I have not met a single person who can tell me they don't see race. Because we all do, and it's reflected in the books that we read and the neighborhoods we live in and the schools we send our kids to and the friends that we have again and again and again. And that's why it's an old rule, because that's what we need to counter and to overcome. I And again, I couldn't agree more. And you're 100% right. You know, I mean, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, a little town called Irwin, Tennessee. And I mean, the, the only people I ever saw that were darker than me uh, were the migrant workers that would come in and pick the tomato fields for right. a few months out of the year. Well, fast forward, I turn, uh, I, I turn 19, go to boot camp. I'm in Paris Island, South Carolina, Marine Corps boot camp. And next thing I know, like, it's just this whole eclectic group of people. And my, my bunk mate uh, was a, a Muslim kid named Virk. And here I am, you know, raised white Southern Baptist. And all of a sudden I'm assigned to stick with this guy while he does his daily prayers as a Muslim. And it was just this immersion into different cultures and being exposed to different, uh, not just ethnicities, but different cultures and, and customs. Yeah. And, and you know what it also was early. That was something that I love talking about the military. I think, I mean, I think that 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 when we talk about actual melting pots, the military is what I what I think about, because what happens when you emerge from those when the boot camps and basic trainings. But what I think is also important when I talk about the military a lot is that you are tasked with accomplishing tasks together. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that they throw a whole bunch of different people from different backgrounds, different this together and train them. You also made them work together and work to accomplish work and projects and do things together. And that's what I usually tell my clients. Like it's, you know, it's not enough to just say, you're going to hire a bunch of diverse people and let them go. Have them work on a common goal mm-hmm. and have people work on that common goal because that's how you start to 
recognize differences, include differences in the way that you work, understand other values. You know, you talked about him praying five times a day and it's that work and it's that kind of common bond and common recognition that can actually get you to the point where you might be able to say, I don't see color. Or at the very least you can say, I do see your color and I think your color is equal to my own. And that is where I want people to get to. Yeah. Now, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We maybe take it to an unhealthy level because we we like to give each other grief about our differences. Yes. You know, so I will say this. Most uh, military offices aren't what you would want to walk into if you were an EEO person. Just plain and simple. Uh, but, but the other thing there that you said about that, and I think this is very interesting with some of the conversations we're having, especially in the DOD right now, right. Uh, with, with President Biden uh, signing the executive order, countermanding the executive order, not allowing transgender uh, people serve. They can now, again. Uh, EEO started out as an actual national defense initiative. It was considered... I didn't know that, Earl. Yeah, it was, um, it may have been towards the end of the Korean War, but I want to say definitely uh, Vietnam War. Right. Because what, what they noticed was kind of what you just said. When we had a shared purpose, uh, white troops and black troops would go out into the jungle. Oh, I and- do know this. Now I know you. Yes. Yeah, so with, with Eisenhower, because we, or Truman, I talk about this in my book. Yeah, it's exactly it, right? Because of that shared purpose, but because of also, they're darn good at the job and they're darn good at the work. And then you get to the next level when you have to get the promotions and the qualifications. But yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which kind of ties into the next old rule. Everyone starts at the same starting line. Mm, exactly. Well, that and would I be... think that that's a really, because that's when we talk about privilege a lot. Right. Privilege, I know privilege is a really hard word. It's a really tricky word. It's a tough word for a lot of people to understand. But from my perspective, you know, privilege to me means that when I look at the advantages I have in life because I have an American passport, because I speak English, because I am not a person with a disability, because I am straight, that means that I can see that the world that I live in has been built for people like me to benefit people like me, and that's it. So then the question I have for people is, once you realize that, what do you do about it? And so, so often we, we don't tell people that when they start in our companies, especially when we're onboarding, Like there's no manual that explains that some people are just going to get ahead of you because of who they are, because perhaps they had uncles and aunts who worked in corporate America, or perhaps they went to the same school as this guy, or perhaps their dad was golfing by somebody else. I mean, those are the really, you know, it happens a lot, right? right? But also just because they are working in a space where a lot of people look like them and a lot of leaders look like them. And so if you are, say, the first generation, um, you know, Korean-American who is coming in for the first time doing this type of work and you go into these organizations and you don't see yourself represented and you also are coming from a family that has not typically worked in these corporate spaces, it is a lot to try to figure out. And so if we all say, well, everyone's hired on day one and they get access to the same things, it's not true because some people are way ahead And some people are running to try to catch up. And it is very, very difficult for us all to do that. So when I talk about that being an old rule, I really want people to recognize that there are some folks who they don't have it figured out because life is hard for everybody. Right. But there are people who have it figured out a lot faster simply because of the fact of how they were born. And that is the reality of privilege. Yeah. And I'll be the first one to admit this was a hard one for me to struggle to get my mind around because, you know, 
I, again, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, Appalachian Mountains, poor area. Uh, I had all the stereotypical kind of family issues. My my mom had drug issues. My mom and dad split when I was young. You know, all these things, right? And so when people start talking about privilege, I'm like, I I didn't have any privilege. Come on. I had all the cards stacked against me. Right. But it really took me to to, to realize that it's not, privilege isn't about necessarily making your life easier. It's about not making your life harder. Exactly. I mean, and you weren't black. I mean, that's what I would say to that story. Like, all of that happened to you. And you are still a white man in a country that is still majority white. Like, I, you, you can have all of the stress and all the struggle, but what the struggle that you did not have was race. Mm-hmm. And that is what, I mean, to have people understand that and have them see it differently, that's a part of what we talk when we say empathy. You know, this, is, this isn't about accusations and resentment and shaming. I would like you to see me as an equal person whose life matters just as much as yours does. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do that, has you know it has to start with like trying to figure out what are the hard truths that we have to face in our own lives to really make this journey to inclusion a reality for everybody 100 percent. which kind of brings us uh, to old rule number five our culture welcomes everyone <laughs> my, my 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 uh my henry ford rule right i remember i was um i think it was 2002 and i went to dearborn for the first time and I heard this story then, and I read about it in the book called Middlesex, and then years, years later, someone mentioned it to me again. But Henry Ford used to have, like, an actual melting pot ceremony in his factory in Dearborn where, like, people would go into a melting pot, like, immigrants would go in, I mean, and they were usually Eastern European immigrants, and they would go in, and they would be put in this melting pot, and the melting pot would be stirred, literally, and they would go in in all their, like, native dresses, and they would come out in, like, a suit and a tie and a hat because they were American. And I tell this story because I feel like, I mean, as far as I know, but please, if anyone's listened to this, thinks I'm wrong, email me. There are no more melting pot ceremonies in the States. That said, a lot of us go into these workplace cultures, right? So thinking about all the things I just talked about, you know, the business case is not enough, that we don't talk about bias enough, that we really don't talk about race enough, and then that we assume everyone's at the same starting line. So now we are going in. What am I leaving at the door when I come in? So go back to me. And I talk about a black woman named Jasmine in this. Think about the things that she can't bring into that workplace, into the typical American workplace, you know, her culture, her neighborhood, her accent, the ways that she's expected to code switch and to cover just so she can succeed. And just like you said, Earl, you know, everyone has to conform to different levels of hiding who they are from time to time. And it's true. But again, If you are someone who is not in the majority, if you are someone who is also not in the majority in your country, the life of a minority is a lot of going into spaces where you feel like the only again and again and again. And so you try really hard because you really want to succeed. We were leaning in before that term was invented. But at some point you get tired. You get tired of always making sure your hair looks just right, that you never say ax instead of ask, that you never raise your voice, that you never you never let your southern accent come out too much because then people will think about you differently. You work, 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 and work every single day to keep yourself covered. And then if you just can't take it anymore, then that's the day you let a little bit of authenticity loose. And that's too much for some people. Then you are told that your tone was too aggressive. You're told that you aren't dressed professionally enough. And it's those bit by bit by bit, those microaggressions again and again that come back to bite you. And so when I say the culture doesn't include everyone, that's what I mean, right? The culture really doesn't include everyone. And that is the work of change we have to work on. 
Yeah. No, I, uh, I've i got a buddy of mine. He's a uh, youth pastor here in Indianapolis. Uh, and and that, that what you just said was a conversation that, that he has to have on a routine basis with the kids at, at his church. Because, you know, we, we had an incident here in Indianapolis, and they kept showing the pictures of this young man, you know, acting crazy, right? When you dig into this person, he was, uh, you know, volunteer. Uh, he he was a, had a, a high academic average at school. I mean, he was like the model kid. But they picked these certain pictures to depict him on the news, and it was just it was just what you said right there, right? It's like when you're in that situation, you have to be ultra cautious all the right. time. All the time. And all the time. I, I, know, I just. The clothes that you wear, right? You have yeah. to always, when you're going and, you know, when people say, oh, that person, that black person was so articulate. First of all, don't ever say that. But second, of course they were so articulate because they're going into spaces where they are constantly conscious of every word that they use. You look at black men on the news, you see how they're dressed, the suits and the handkerchiefs and the shoes are always shining because you always have to be so careful mm-hmm. that you never slip up. Because the second you do, someone turns to you and thinks unconsciously or not, oh, I guess she's just like the rest of them. And that dismissiveness, that that belittling, that that quite frankly, that 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 bigoted assumption, right? Though all of that, all of the ugliness that's in that phrase. And that is and that's the work that you work on every day. And then you take that into the workplace. And then you tell me that that person didn't cut it here and they didn't succeed and they just didn't make it. And I'm going to tell you that there were a thousand of those cuts that happened before that time happened where they said it's time for me to leave. And that's what I really want leaders to recognize. That's part of that burden of command right there. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And and here's the thing, again, being a white male myself, I'm never going to fully understand this. But I, I do remember the emotion in, in uh, my friend's face when he told me this story. But it, it, it works both ways. So he's, he's in an interracial marriage. His wife is a white lady. And he's got family uh, down south in Mississippi. And he told me a story when they were there visiting. Uh, they went to a, a drive through and he said, I guess the lady thought the microphone wasn't on or they couldn't hear. But when they pulled up and they saw his wife sitting in the seat, he heard the, the, the lady, uh, African-American lady, say to her co-worker, oh, that's why he talks like that. He's married to a white woman. Mm, yeah. And so when you, you're living between both worlds, trying to, to fit both molds, I can mm-hmm. oh, I, I just so I can't imagine the stress. Right. And the, it's just, it's exhausting. It is just exhausting. You know, I, people come, come to me and ask me all the time, you know, why, why can't we retain black talent? Like, why can't we? And I'm just like, <laughs> let me tell you all the stories, y'all. But what you really need to do is, and this is what, you know, when we talk about the new rules and the actions people can take, and there's a lot of them, I always say you got to start with the people, right? Have you mm-hmm. talked to them? Do you have conversations? Do they have a level of trust with you? Have you shown that when there are bigoted remarks made, do you stand up against them? Do you speak out against them? Are you willing to put your own reputation on the line and your own your own resources and your own platform and make sure that you are constantly, constantly challenging the biases that exist? And it, it's a hard ask for a lot of leaders, but I ask them to do that because I want them to stop pushing forward this narrative that you know we just don't know why we're losing all this talent. I can tell you a thousand times and a million times over why are you losing it? The question is, are you willing to change what you've been doing for years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I've ran into too many organizations. You are 100% right, Michelle. They'll spend all this time, all this effort, all this money on training. 
and they they maybe get a good program of of recruiting more diverse talent in but is that top end like women women run this i think maybe by and large more than any other demographic breakdown mm-hmm. we recruit we recruit we want to get uh, more gender equity in our businesses mm-hmm. but then what happens when that lady has a kid mm, yep you know do you have programs in place to help her be able to have a family and continue working or is it well okay well we got you in here you chose to have a kid we need somebody who can be here and and uh, that is a big point where most women exit the workforce is once they start having children right and not not just children so there was another and so that's like the one i mean and it's absolutely true right are you creating a workplace that allows for that And then if you look at the stats from COVID, I mean, millions of women have left the workplace and we know why. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the other perspective. So I work with a lot of law firms. So then if you look at when women leave law firms, men and women leave law firms up until the exact same rate, up until they hit equity partner, right? The ownership part where you have to bring in the clients. And then at that point, women are leaving at 40% higher rates than men. It's not because they're having kids. It's because they don't have access to those clients. And then if you break down why they don't have access to the clients, the easy narrative is, well, women aren't, you know, pushing her as hard as men are, or they're not as good salesmen as men. No, women are doing a ton of work on the clients. They just don't inherit them like their male colleagues do. So when those partners retire, who do they pass the work on to? They pass the client onto the man and how law firms are structured, talking about how fences are built, how law firms are structured is that they allow for that. So again, we got to do a better job than say, that's just the way it is, right? So mm-hmm. just like what you said with the kids, we need to see, okay, women are leaving and they, is your organization structured to prevent that? Or are you just going to throw up your hands and say, well, women have kids and that's it. Peace out. We're gone. Because I got to tell you, companies across the world are able to figure this out. Why can't your company? Mm-hmm. And why can't your company here based in the United States cannot figure out something that my mother's company in Jamaica was able to figure out 40 years ago and keep her in the workplace? What is the difference and what are we not doing that we can be doing better? That is a fantastic question. Uh, Listeners, we're talking about authentic diversity, how to change the workplace for good by Michelle Silverthorne. Now, we talked about the old rules. Uh, We're not going to get into all of the new rules here for uh, for time constraints. Oh man, we could talk. Earl and I could keep talking all day. Oh, this is great. I, th- this would be fantastic. Like, like, I may have to have you back on when we can dedicate a little bit more time to this because I love it. Uh, but this gives you all, listeners, a reason to go out and get the book because you get to figure out what the new rules are then. Uh, but I do want to ask you. And it's on Audible. It's on Audible right now. So you can also pick up the book on audiobook form. It's great. You can do it for your commute between your bedroom and your, your office. It's wonderful. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, and we'll put the links to all that in the show notes as well, because I'm a big fan of Audible. But if you, if you have a second, let's take a second here real quick. Let's talk about rule number five. Make mm-hmm. authentic diversity matter uh. for good. I mean, that is the centerpiece of the work I do, right? Because if I, let's go back to black professionals. If you're going to hire black people, let us be black. Let us be black. Let us use our differences in our languages and our communication and our networks and our friends and our, our people. And if you really are committing to this work of inclusion, because I think a lot of people are, you're committed to this work of inclusion, then what does that mean to you? Does it mean that everyone just looks the same or does it mean that people are allowed to be different? And if they are different, they can succeed. And so when I talk about authentic diversity, which is the reason I titled my book Authentic Diversity, 
I really want people to leave with the hope. Like, it's not just about here is this rule you have to follow and here is this rule. I want you to think about in your, in your, in your big picture, in your greatest dream as a leader, what does, what does diversity look like to you? And to me, it looks like a place where people are working differently, where their values are allowed to be a part of the workplace, but also where you have leaders who are willing to, you know, roll up their sleeves and manage the conflict that arises and are able to say, okay, I know that Hakeem is really going to be very good at working on X project. We keep on putting him on Y project. He's not succeeding at that. You know what? It's not because he can't cut it. It's because he really should be working on X project. And I, as a leader, am willing to commit to making sure that he does that work. How great would that be? How great would that be? We managed to turn around an entire nation of white collar workers literally overnight to work from home. And it has been almost a year of us doing this. Think about what we could do if we committed to diversity. Plus, think about how much of what we have been saying on diversity. Women, for example, need better hours so they can make sure that they, because women do 70% of the labor at home, make sure that they can do school pickups and, you know, hand handle their kids and help out the children, right? This has changed. We can now see that, yes, you can successfully work from home and still have a really, really successful company, assuming you're in the market that allows for that, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's possible. Yes, we can do it. Yes, we need to think bigger than just giving people stools to succeed. Let's look at the fences and let's look at the systems and think about what can be changed. And I think Earl just goes back to what I said at the beginning. Do we have leaders who are brave enough to do it? Do we have leaders who are courageous of food? Are they only going to do it when we have a global pandemic? When we have a black man getting killed in front of a camera? Is that the reason you're going to do it? Or are you going to say starting today, here is the change I'm willing to make? And that's what I'm hoping that we get leadership to do. And I believe in it, man. I believe in it because if I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't be doing this work. Mm. No, I love it. And I, I can tell you right now, the the fact that you believe in it definitely comes through with your voice and your passion. And, and I just I really appreciate the time you spent with us and having this conversation. And I, I just I know uh, that my listeners, uh, this is translated through to them. And I know that they're asking themselves right now, man, how do I find out more about Michelle <laughs> and get so. in touch with her? So how can they get in touch with you easier? That's so nice of you to ask. Um, so uh, you can find me on my website. I am michellesilverthorne.com. Silverthorne does not have an E. People love to put an E. michellesilverthorne.com. You just search for Michelle Silverthorne online. I'm also on all the various social media handles, except for TikTok, because I have not figured that one out yet. And I'm at at in with Michelle. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I love having a LinkedIn community. And of course, buy my book, buy the audiobook. And I am always, always, always happy to get comments and questions. Please feel free to reach out. I love it. And I'll have links to all of those in the show notes. And again, I just want to encourage folks, check out the book. Listen to what Michelle's got to say. Listen to her TED Talk. It's on her uh, website. It's a great talk. And uh, I just want to thank you all for listening to this episode, especially. There's a lot of good information here. I really hope that you take this to heart and, and really give authentic diversity its due diligence, because it is definitely something that we need to be looking at uh, for, for all the reasons that Michelle and I have discussed and many more we didn't even get a chance to touch on. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. 
and keep doing the the subscribing the rating the reviewings of the show and and sharing it with folks you know that's how the the messages like michelle's get spread you have an active role in that so uh make sure that uh, you keep taking it seriously and i appreciate what you've done so far with that thank you all for your time and i look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid. Electric acid.